0: Welcome to the At The Castle Bible Teaching Podcast. Our goal is to dive deep into the Word of God and uncover its timeless truths and teachings. At The Castle, we believe that the Bible is the inspired and infallible Word of God, and we seek to understand and apply it to our lives. During ATC Winter Weekend 2022, we were joined by Andrew Sack, who helped us to explore the Gospel of Mark. For more information about At The Castle, please check out our website, www.atthecastle.org.uk or find us via our social media. We hope that through this podcast you'll grow in your knowledge and love of God's word and be equipped to live out your faith more fully.
1: Welcome back or to, I think, a couple of people welcome for the first time to our series Mark. Um, and what we're trying to do in these sessions, if you are new to it, is it, is a bit of a sermon with a difference because I'm trying to kind of half preach it but also half take you into my study to show you how I get there. So the idea of that is that when you come to a Bible passage, you'll know some of the ways that you might be able to get a bit further and see a bit more um, than you might have done. So I'm I'm kind of sharing preacher's secrets, not really secrets, but just um, Bible, how to read carefully, basically. And the first thing I said on Friday night was we need to just read lots of times. So there's no substitute for familiarity um, with the text the, the the more you know it the more you start to understand it and actually you can almost it's impossible to know it too much So, if I learned something this morning that I'd never seen before in Mark's gospel just as I was preparing this morning's quiz and I was like oh wow you know how Jesus um, keeps saying everything happens immediately everything is immediately in Mark and I was just, one of my quiz questions was going to be how many times does the word immediately come? It's a bit hard, I'll give you multiple choice. And I, I just checked to find out where all the, all the immediately's were. And some of them don't come up in our English translation. And the first immediately is John the Baptist, and um, prepare a way for the Lord in the wilderness, make his ways immediate. Because the word doesn't just mean immediately, it kind of means direct or unhindered. Clear the way so that God can come straight in. And that's what John the Baptist does. And then God comes straight in. So that, that, I thought, wow, I've never known this before. This is where everything is immediately. Because Jesus is unhindered in his mission. So there we are. Um, I learned something this morning just preparing a quiz. Um, and there's always more to see. So to look at it again and again, to keep reading and rereading. And my plea is, and I really want you to take this away from this weekend. Please don't turn up, turn up at church and, and not know what is going to be preached that Sunday. Find out study it yourself, read it yourself on Saturday and then come on Sunday, you've already read it once, you've already started to mull over it, you'll get way more on Sunday and then read the same thing on Monday and pray it in. If you've got a midweek study on a Wednesday, I don't know what time your studies are, Grace Church Greenwich there on Wednesday, so why not read the passage on Tuesday and then when you come to it on Wednesday you've already read it once, it's already going over in your mind and then you study it together and then read it again on Thursday and pray it through. Sometimes we can get indigestion because we read so many different bits of the Bible, and that, yeah, that's good, but why not just chew over? Like the cow with four stomachs, be a Christian with four, <coughs> with four digestions of the same passage can really help. And I hope to that end that you might go over some of what we looked at, even uh, Friday night this morning. You know, We've covered a lot of stuff this weekend, so you'll get indigestion unless you give it a bit more chance to enter into your second, third, and fourth stomach. Um, Good. Okay. And one of, the, one of the fun ways, at least it's fun for me, maybe less fun for you, that we've, we've tried to increase our familiarity is by me giving you tests. I found them enormous fun. I actually came to this weekend only having written one, which is <coughs> Colours and Animals in Mark. And you did so well at it that I've been trying to think of new ones. So here's my test this afternoon. All the references to bread in Mark's Gospel and can I say this is quite hard? Um, we came up with this at lunchtime in the table I was sitting on, and then um, I missed half of them. And I looked at my Bible. Oh wow, that's so. Um, sit, turn to your neighbour. Don't look at a Bible. That's cheating. How many references to bread can you think of in Mark's Gospel? <laughs> I do not even hear I not don't, <laughs> Thirty seconds more. I didn't need it. Everyone stopped. Okay, so it's the same same, uh, principle as before. One point for a correct reference to bread minus two points for a, a reference to bread that is spurious and not in Mark. Okay, anyone want to suggest one? Where is Mark mentioned bread? I've got the definitive answer here. Oh, I don't know, I haven't counted them, but I, I know. Um, I've ba- I basically got my Bible software and I searched for arton, which is the Greek word for bread, and I've got all the references, so I can check, as you said. There's not, I mean, there's not hundreds, but there's, there's more than you might originally think. Anyone want to start us off? Bread. Last supper? Yes, the last supper. Yeah, Jesus took the bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take this, um, this is my body which is given for you. Good plus one point it's just trying to be contrary there the feeding of the 4,000 is indeed a reference to bread and also you can have the feeding of the 5,000 so okay, so that's three points maximum so far yeah any others the disciples forgot to bring bread in the boat what I call the feeding of the 12 um, in chapter 8 yeah that's reference to bread yeah that's four points maximum so far any more if you cheated, you're not allowed to stay. You cheated how? With, with Bible software or by your Bible? In the controversy about being Lord of the Sabbath, how come... I mean, the Pharisees interpret the law in the most bizarre way, don't they? So, you know, uh, Jesus' disciples are going through the, um, the cornfields snacking. And they go, oh, technically, that's harvesting. It's like, no, it isn't. It's like, if you can't tell the difference between going to work in a farm and sucking a polo, you know, it's a bit bit ridiculous. Anyway, they get into this big controversy. And Jesus says, look, how come you don't apply your ridiculous view of the the Old Testament to King David? Because when he was hungry and starving, he went into the temple and ate the, the bread of the presence. Yeah, that's bread. Good. Yes, the Syrophoenician women, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she says, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Yep. Is cast your bread on the Lord? No, minus two points. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's so mean, isn't it? It's easier when I've got the answers. Any others? We're almost there, actually. Well, well, we're Say we again. To do, um,
0: are we expected to go and buy bread for all these people?
1: That feeling of 5,000, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that, that, we've, that, and you get one point for that already. Yeah, you can't get a second. There's quite a lot of references to bread in the feeling of 5,000. Yeah, but you, but you only get one point because it's only one episode. Yeah. Any others? Yeah, okay, very good. When Jesus sends out the 12 on their mission, he tells them to take no bread for the journey, which is quite an odd instruction. It turns out what Jesus means is, you're gonna to need to receive the hospitality of the people you go to, otherwise you have got to leave because you've got no winter clothes, no clothes for the night, no bread. So basically you go on mission and people have got a choice, either put you up in the house or you leave. So it's Jesus sort of forcing a decision. Um, and the reason he does that I think is because we've just seen with King Herod how sitting on the fence is super dangerous. And King Herod sits on the fence for so long that he ends up beheading an innocent man. And Jesus says, why don't you do a mission where no one can sit on the fence? They turn up in your town, and the options afterwards are not, I'm quite interested, I'd like to sign up for Christianity Explored. No, the options are, I'm so interested that the missionary can live with me, or goodbye. They're the only few options. So Jesus um, forcing no sitting on the fence. Yeah, I think we've almost got all of them. Uh, Let me have a look. Yes, 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 yes. Um, There's just one other one that you can't get in English, so. Oh, two others. That. And the, the the controversy about clean and unclean food. And in English, in the ESV, it says the disciples ate bread, ate with hands that were unwashed. And in Greek, it says they ate bread with hands that were unwashed. So you get an extra point for that. There we are. Good. Um, feel good about how well you know Mark. Um, Mark chapter six. I think this is the most amazing miracle so far. Now obviously it's a bit subjective, right, because raising someone from the dead, feeding someone who's hungry, you know, you might say a resurrection's harder. Um, I think, I want to argue that this is the biggest one, and it doesn't really matter if you agree with me or not, but there's, there's a reason why it's a pretty big deal. Uh, it's certainly the most difficult one scientifically, I think. So have you got, I don't know if you've got any physicists here, any physicists or engineers, met some engineers. Yeah, yeah, a few engineers. I think this is the one that gives physicists the biggest headache because, I mean, walking on water at room temperature, it's kind of difficult. You've got to change the rules of gravity a little bit. Um, raising someone from the dead, you kind of got to reverse a um, bit of biology. And we can kind of do it at a two-minute interval, can't we? If someone starts breathing for a couple of minutes, you can get them going again with an electric shock. But... Um, Hours is, you know, we can't really do it. But it's just better than we can do it, biology, medicine. But feeding the 5,000 is really a problem because it seems to me you end up with more bread atoms than you start with. That really is not allowed in <laughs> physics. Like, there's this, you know, the number of atoms in the universe, it just has to stay the same. Otherwise, there's just all sorts of mind boggling um, consequences. Um, But Jesus does it. And um, I quite like that he does. I mean, sometimes people try to find scientific explanations for how Jesus could have done his miracles. And there's actually a a kind of Christian scientist stream of people who try to do this. And they're well-meaning. I mean, these these are genuine Christians. They, They don't think that Jesus didn't do the miracles, but they just desperately want him not to mess up with science to do it. So there's a book about the exodus, by a guy called Colin Humphreys, who is the professor of material science at Cambridge. He's a Christian and he thinks that the miracles happened, but he wants to argue that all of them have a natural explanation. So the burning bush is a venting of volcanic gas, which catches fire around the bush, but the bush itself isn't actually on fire, it's just the gas that is. And the parting of the Red Sea is because of a thing called wind set down, Um, Why would you get this unusual wind pattern? Well, it's the kind of thing you get after a volcano, because after Mount Sinai's got fire on it and it's trembling, so it's obviously volcanic. And then a volcanic eruption is going to cause the water to become acidic, and that's going to cause certain bacteria to thrive. Those bacteria are red-coloured, so the water looks like it's turned red, etc. He explains all of them. And you kind of go, well, you know I. I see what you're trying to do there. You're trying to say God's in charge of nature. God's the creator. And he likes to use creation for things, which he does. But I don't think we need to try that hard. Because sometimes God just likes to break the rules. And why shouldn't he? If he's God. So the phrase I like to use evangelistically when I'm talking about miracles, <coughs> is that miracles are ordinarily impossible. Like ordinarily they are like ordinarily you can't walk on water at room temperature ordinarily if you're dead for hours you you can't be resuscitated um ordinarily if you've got five loaves of bread that is not enough to feed 10,000 people like 5,000 men plus women plus children you know 12,000 I don't know how many there are many many thousands of people um that isn't ordinarily enough and so all you're saying by saying ordinarily you're saying science needs to be a bit humbler because all science is doing is measuring what is usually the case. And it's um, noticing uniformity, you know, regularity, that, that the universe just behaves the same way day by day, and the scientists notice that. So if I drop an apple out of the um, window in the turret and cast well in Castle Wellen, the apple's gonna accelerate towards the Earth at 9.81 meters per second per second. Because um, that's just how fast things accelerate due to gravity. And if I went home to Greenwich, and I threw something out of my window in Greenwich, it would also fall to the ground at 9.81 meters per second per second, allowing for wind resistance. It's just the same, you know, it's the same in Castlewell, and it's the same in Greenwich, it's the same in Uganda, just that's how fast things accelerate due to gravity. And so the scientists observe this, and they say, oh, it's a law of science. It's based on the fact that it always works the same. Yeah, but that doesn't mean it has to work the same. Doesn't mean God is obliged to do it the same. I mean, if, if God wanted to, He could just add a, an extra zero to the underlying gravitational constant, um, and I mean, it would cause havoc in green, green graces shops all over the world. You know, suddenly um, shelves of bananas weigh ten times as much and crash to the floor. I know there are some mornings when it does feel that God has multiplied gravity by a factor of ten, <laughs> and you can't get out of bed, especially for. people in their 20s, although it's actually still the same for me, 47. But um, actually, science is only possible because God chooses ordinarily to do it the same every day. He keeps gravity the same every day. He keeps the speed of light the same every day. He keeps biology the same pretty much every day, etc. But he doesn't have to. And very, very occasionally, he just does it differently. Which is actually a really good way of getting your attention. Um, I just doing this as a little aside because I, I used to be a science student, and I often talk to atheists who are hung up on miracles. A- as an atheist, I used to have a problem with miracles, um, and now as a question, I realized my logic was a bit circular. What I meant was because there's no God, um, then nobody could ever adjust the numbers, so miracles are impossible. To which I now reply, well, if there is a God, God can adjust the numbers. So miracles are possible. That's really all the explanation it requires. It just depends on what your prior assumption was. Uh, Why shouldn't God move the numbers to get your attention? In fact, I now think it's exactly what I would expect Jesus to do. Let's imagine Jesus turns up and says, oh, I'm God. And you go, prove it. He goes, I can't prove it. I can't do anything that the rest of you can't do, but trust me, I'm God. He's like, no, you're not, right? I mean, if if God, the God who made the universe, has actually shown up, I would expect him to do really unusual things. For example, do something that is ordinarily impossible. Just a little bit of an aside. And feeding the 5,000 really is ordinarily impossible. And there's lots of little details of the way Mark tells it that's quite enjoyable. That just shows something really extraordinary has happened so it all kicks off because there's these massive crowds and everyone is exhausted because jesus ministry is becoming so popular and the disciples have been helping with it and they're exhausted and jesus let's go off to the desert the wilderness place we keep going to the wilderness place don't we in mark's gospel we'll come to that later but they go again to the a wilderness place and they they're trying to get a bit of R and R, but unfortunately for them, the crowds notice them setting off in the boat, watch and see which way their boat's going, and then leg it on foot, and they get there in advance. So, what they think is going to be, you know, they're more up somewhere, quiet, and have a bit of um, a bit of time for themselves, and instead, by the time they arrive, there's a huge crowd there, five thousand people waiting for them. Oh, okay, no rest today then. And Jesus is um, compassionate because they're like sheep without a shepherd, and he starts to teach them. And then he gets late, and bear in mind, this is not a town. They're not in a town, because the whole point of it was that they disappeared into the countryside to get some rest. So they're miles from anywhere in the countryside, and they've got loads of people, and there's no shops, and everyone's hungry. So, you know, what are we going to do for dinner, uh, arises um, as a question. No one's expecting Jesus to have taught all day. No one's packed to lunch, and they don't know what to do. And um, the disciples point this out. Um, this is a desolate place, Jesus. The hour's late. Time to send people to go and get some food from the surrounding villages. And Jesus answers them. And I love to try and guess the tone of voice. You can't, I mean, it doesn't say um, in, as it's written down, but you can guess, can't you? You give them something to eat. I think that is what I would call cheeky. <laughs> Jesus says cheekily. Oh, you feed them. And then they say, um, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bed and give them to eat? What what tone of voice do you think? Sarcastically, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure, yeah. We'll go and spend like 20 grand on some food, shall we? That's what it is, by the way. Um, A denarius is a day's wage. So you get paid 365 denarius a a year. So 200 denarius is what you get paid for about two-thirds of a year. Apparently, the average annual wage in Northern Ireland is £30,000. So, two-thirds of that is about £20,000. Which tells you that lunch in the first century, if there were 5,000 people, cost about the same as it does in Pret-a-Manger today. You know. <laughs> Are we made of money, Jesus? Like, seriously? You know, oh, yeah, well, we'll go and spend 20 grand. Yeah, we've got that to spare. Okay. Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they come back and say five. Tone of voice, Jesus. We found five. <laughs> like, yeah, this, Jesus. This was not a good plan. Okay, so you know, you told us to buy it. We can't afford it. You told us to find the bread. And frankly, I mean, five is actually unusually small, isn't it? I mean, there's five thousand people, and only one in a thousand of them have <laughs> brought any lunch. I, I presume it's like if you go into the office with a packed lunch and you've eaten it by ten o'clock, right? Because you. You just get a bit peckish early, don't you? Say so if they brought food with them, they've already eaten it by now, and now it's late, and there's just no food left. In the whole crowd, five loaves. And Jesus goes, "Okay, well, share it out then." <laughs> Tone of voice, like insistently, and they're, they're just well, we'll humour him because you know he has done some unusual things before now, and th- they do. And then Mark just explains in three. uh, Three phrases that something amazing's happened. Number one, verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied. What? (laughs) What? Then they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of leftovers and fish. 12 baskets, in other words, even the leftovers are enormously more than they started with. And then the punchline, right at the end, Mark, um, Mark tells you the number, and there were 5,000 men of the, in, amongst them, not to mention the women and children. Like, wow. Um, friend of mine, um, I go to Latvia every couple of years. I've been involved there for about 15 years, helping to uh, equip pastors. It's really, have got some really good friends there. And there's one guy who we call the Godfather, because um, if he wasn't a Christian, he would be running the mafia. In, in Riga, I, honest, I honestly think. He, he's short and stocky and wears a leather jacket. And he's extremely streetwise. Because basically he was, I mean, almost a criminal. I mean, before he got converted. And what happened in Latvia, when the Soviet Union opened up um, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, people started going to church. And it wasn't necessarily a, a revival. It wasn't that they were particularly interested in God. It's just they wanted to do everything that had been banned under the Soviets. So, you know, the Soviets were atheists. You weren't allowed to go to church. And now you could go to church. So they thought, let's go to church. So churches for a few years filled up with people. And this guy, Alvis, thought, this is a business opportunity. (laughs) So he thought, I'll become a pastor. He wasn't converted, but he thought, you know, this is a niche in the um, emerging Post-Soviet market. So, went to got registered as pastor. The denomination seems to have no hesitation about making him one. So, he thought, well, I better preach about Jesus. I suppose that's what they do in church. So, he worked his way through the gospel, and he used to sleep with his girlfriend on a Saturday night, um, and and then go off to church and and uh, preach on the Sunday morning. And occasionally, he used to like a cigar as a treat. At uh, one week, he got to the feeding of the five thousand. And he said to me, I know this guy really well. He said to me, I couldn't work out how Jesus did it. <laughs> and he, you know, he said to his girl, I'm sorry, I'm not interested tonight. And he, he stayed up the whole night. And he said, I smoked a lot of cigars. <laughs> he was trying to think, how did Jesus pull this off? And um, eventually, he found a liberal commentary that said, Jesus' personality was so powerful that people felt fed. LAUGHTER and he thought that's very clever. And he's really chuffed about this. So he thought, yeah, great. So the next next day in church, um, he preached this sermon and, and he said, you know, because his personality was so powerful psychologically, they felt full. And then after the service, there was a woman came up to him. He was quite elderly, and she was obviously a bit deaf, and seems she hadn't really heard very much of the sermon at all. She hadn't really followed it, but she came and um, shook hands with him at the door. Said, thank you so much, pastor because you know, God was so kind to us in the gulags. Thank you. She hadn't understood his clever, clever argument. She was just a real Christian who clung on to faith in a Jesus who can do miracles through the most awful time in the Soviet history of Latvia. And he felt absolutely wretched at that point. Because this isn't a little psychological story. And if it is a psychological story, it has no power at all. Um, it is a miracle. Not that this is what Jesus ordinarily does when people are hungry. It's, not, it's like a Capernaum paint, sh- um, paint pot preview kind of miracle. Jesus is doing a one-off thing to show something amazing about his power. And this woman believed it. And now I'm glad to say my friend Elvis believes it. And he's now a... Wonderful gospel preacher in Latvia after his conversion. Um, it's an amazing miracle. And then Jesus does another amazing miracle. So what happens next is Jesus sends off the uh, disciples saying, look, you guys are, are tired and it's been a long day. You go off in the boat and I'll, I'll follow along later. And Jesus then you know, <coughs> says goodbye to everyone in the, in the big crowd. And so off the disciples go. And it's quite windy, so it takes them ages and in fact, it gets to the fourth watch of the night, which is 3 a.m. Um, so watches of the night, you basically divide, the night starts at 6 p.m. dusk, basically, in, near the equator. And then it's, um, morning starts at 6 a.m. like it does for farmers here. And um, you divide it into four. So first watch of the night, six till nine. Second watch, nine till midnight. Third watch, midnight till three. Fourth watch of the night, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. It's 3 a.m. and they still haven't got home because the wind's against them. So Jesus decides to join them. So he just walks across the sea, um, is about to pass by them. They see him, um, and he says, oh, it's it's me, don't be afraid. (laughs) They are very afraid, like obviously. I, I love this as well, if you're ever talking to the atheist who's skeptical about miracles, sometimes people think that people in the first century were so credulous so naive that they didn't even understand that this is impossible, like these are fishermen, like they know that you don't walk on water you don't have to know a lot of science to know that do you you just have to get out of a fishing boat every day. This is not normal, and so they don't go, "Oh yes, in this very fairy, fairy tale world, hello they go, "What on earth is going on?" and they're scared stiff, and Jesus gets into the boat, and then for the second time in Mark's gospel, immediately a, a wind. Flattens, stops. Jesus doesn't even have to tell it off this time. He just obeys him. Two miracles. Um, They're amazing by themselves. They tell you that Jesus has got crazy power to do the ordinarily impossible. But there's also a bit more to it than this. And the clue is in verse 52. Just look at verse 52. And why don't you turn to your neighbor and say what hint there is in verse 52 that there's something more going on. And there's a, again, there's an easy answer and then there's a slightly harder answer. So, so think about it um, hard. With your neighbor, verse 52. Okay, let's pause there. What's, what's the clue that there's something else going on? Their hearts are hardened. Okay, their hearts are hardened. What's the clue that there's something more going on in the miracle?
0: It says they haven't understood,
1: they They haven't understood but they understand that they were hungry and then Jesus fed a lot of people and they had leftovers because it just happened. So they understand that, but they hadn't understood about the loaves. In other words, there, there is something more to understand than the thing that they do understand. Like they get, we just had lunch or dinner, but they didn't understand. Okay, that's good, there's a bit more to it, that's a good start. Um, One of the principles um, that I teach in Cornhill all the time, you might have heard this, is whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you should ask what it's. Okay, you do it in Northern Ireland too. I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) What is the word therefore, therefore? And the same goes for for the word for or because. So verse 52 actually says, because, for, they didn't understand about the loaves. What because they didn't understand about the loaves? They were astonished at Jesus walking on water because they didn't understand about the loaves. Now, let's just put this together. I know this is quite hard to process, but it's a very dense idea. What Mark is saying is, if they had understood about the loaves, they would not be surprised at Jesus walking on water. But they didn't understand about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. And so they were astonished at him walking on water, in other words, somehow this is the key to that if you get if you get it if you if you know the thing that's behind it, then you will you'll realize that oh, of course he walked on water, yeah, that's what we're expecting. What is there to get about the feeding of the five thousand um, and now um I don't know if you remember osmosis, if any of you did GCSE biology. Water moves from an area of high water potential to an area of low water potential through a semi-permeable membrane. How do I still know that? I know that because of a biology teacher whose name I'm not going to mention, although she's retired now, so I'll tell you, Mrs. Gill. I know it because of my biology teacher, who had slightly unorthodox teaching methods. And the way we did GCSEs um, is, is we had assessed coursework for biology. And the reason that people in my school did really quite well on their, on their coursework was because of um, what I want to call Mrs. Gill's policy of highly targeted revision, so we started a class, and she goes, are we going to do an assessed practical? I mean, I don't think it will take the whole lesson. I don't want to waste any time. Why don't we use the beginning lesson to revise osmosis? And um, osmosis is, and we almost got us chanting, the movement of water from an area of high water potential to an area of low water potential through a? We all said, that's right, children, a semi-permeable membrane. OK, should we do an assess practical? <laughs> And then we all wrote down, semi pill remember, we all got an A. So, um, <laughs> highly targeted revision. I want to do some highly targeted revision um, about the book of Exodus, just for so fun. Um, the book of Exodus, there's lots of things that happen, but here are some of the things that happen. Um, God appears to Moses at a burning bush and gives his name, I am who I am. And Moses is very afraid, and God says, don't be afraid. Actually, a bit later on, um, God also appears to Moses. This time, Moses is in a cave in the rock, and God passes by the cave and says his name, I am, I am. Um, Don't be afraid, Moses, I am. That, that's interesting, isn't it? And then a little bit later in, um, in Exodus, uh, they get saved um, through, from Pharaoh, and Pharaoh chases them until they get to the waters of the Red Sea. And God parts the waters of the Red Sea, and they walk through the sea, as if on dry land. Um, uh, In fact, the Psalms describe it exactly that way, your footsteps were in the sea. Um, And uh, they get to the other side, and at the other side there's a wilderness, and the trouble with the wilderness is there's not a lot of food in a wilderness, but that's okay, because God feeds them miraculously with bread from heaven called manna, which means what's it? So, what sits from heaven? I don't think they were flavoured with cheese. <laughs> they're flavoured actually with coriander and honey, i told. But yeah, otherwise, they, they should bring out a, a, a new edition, shouldn't they? A biblical what sits, coriander and honey flavour. Um, and they eat, they eat this bread from heaven and they enjoy it. And then finally, they get to Mount Sinai, a mountain called Sinai. And um, Moses goes up to meet with God and to pray at the mountain. Oh, one thing I forgot to say. Um, The reason that it takes so long to get out of Egypt is because Pharaoh really doesn't seem to get the the plagues, the the power behind the plagues. And every time God sort of tries to persuade them to let the people go, he hardens his heart, interestingly enough. Anyway, I thought you might enjoy that um, random bit of a vision of Exodus. Um, Here we are in Mark chapter (coughs) 6. It's just possible that some bits of Exodus are ringing some bells for you. Why don't you turn to your neighbour and see which bits you recognise and see if you can find where they go. Okay, let's be back. So, anyone find some things that ring bells from the Exodus? Bread, bread in the wilderness, in the wilderness. Okay, so um, they're fed miraculously. In Exodus, the bread is from heaven. Any link here? This is bread from someone's lunch. But Jesus looks up to heaven. Phrase and then feeds them. So okay, bread bread from heaven. Yeah, that that's pretty extras like. so I make a list of them? Bread from heaven. Both stories of water? Say again. Both stories of water. Okay, can you be more specific then <laughs> yes, what, what what about the water? That's good but, but um, crossing it, it? Crossing water in a very unusual way on foot. Yeah, crossing water on foot happens in both. Okay, that's good. Um, those are the two big ones. Any other ones? It is, yeah. So the Greek expression when Jesus says, don't be afraid, I am, literally. Echo Amy. go, um, Amy don't be afraid they're scared jesus is passing by them which is what happens in exodus 34 and he says i am the same word so yeah i am don't be scared that's exactly the same well done oh i'm crossing water just for extra extra points um I worked out some some time ago, I read somebody who worked out, I can't remember if it was me or I'd read it in somebody else, but it turns out it's also the right time of night for the Exodus, the the fourth watch of the night, 3 a.m. is about when they crossed. And you can even work out the wind direction because we know they're going back and the wind's against them. And it turns out to match the easterly wind from Exodus. So, yeah, it's just God's God's into details. (laughs) But, yeah, anyway, okay, any other big ones? yes hardened hearts meaning they don't get it hard hearts don't get it yeah just like pharaoh exactly so it's just like it's just like exodus in exodus the pharaoh's heart's hard heart. here the disciples hearts are hard anything else almost there Later on, there'll be Passover. We haven't got it yet. But yeah, the, the, it's almost like that's the big thing in Exodus that isn't in the list. And you're thinking, what about the Passover? And Mark's like, hold that thought. Because it be a big thing later in the Gospel. Yeah. Jesus, yeah, Jesus prays on the mountain, a bit like Moses does. Prayer on the mountain. I mean, cumulatively, you know, one or two details, you might think that's a coincidence. But cumulatively, like, how can you miss this? Well, they did, didn't they? They missed it. But you shouldn't have missed it. And of course, if you'd understood the loaves, oh, it's like he's the God of the Exodus. Then you ought to think, I wouldn't be surprised if he starts crossing water really unusually any time now. It shouldn't have surprised them. But they just don't get it, and so they don't make the link. It does surprise them. So um, what is it saying to say that Mark is like the Exodus? It's saying that the rescue is here. Sorry, you can't read that. It's getting too late for me to write neatly. Rescue. And this is why I'm saying it's it's the biggest miracle so far because it's one thing to, you know, heal diseases in Capernaum. It's an amazing thing to do, to cleanse a leper. Even to raise a girl from the dead. But this is a kind of on a different scale because Jesus is saying, you know what Moses did in the most famous event in the entire Bible so far? How he rescued people out of slavery so that they would be able to worship God and be close to God. That's what I'm doing. This is Exodus 2.0, you might say. It's It's the second one. First one in the Old Testament. This is the New Testament version. Um, I am bringing about a huge exodus. And then um, I, just, I can't resist showing you this because it just does slightly blow your mind. But I'm saying Mark goes to exodus. But you might also think it's a bit like Ezekiel 34. Because um, Ezekiel 34, if you don't know, that's the chapter where God has it in for the shepherds of Israel. He says, "Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only feed themselves! Shouldn't shepherds take care of the sheep?" He says, "But instead, you fattened yourselves on the sheep." So here is these neglectful shepherds, and they're devouring the sheep. And um, of course, Jesus is talking about the kids, Ezekiel is talking about the kings of Israel. They're called shepherds metaphorically. The kings of Israel do not serve the sheep, but they devour the sheep. And then famously, Ezekiel says, This is what I'm going to do, says the Lord. I myself will come and be their shepherd, says the Lord. I will feed the sheep. So you've got fake kings devouring sheep, and God, the true king, coming to feed sheep. Well, that fits the context. What happens immediately before this in Mark's gospel? Here's a banquet. Uh, in the wilderness with King Jesus. Just before it is another banquet. With the difference. What happens at the previous banquet. If if bread and fish are served up at Jesus banquet. What is served up at the previous banquet. Just look down. You'll find it pretty quickly. Immediately before this. Yeah. Served at the banquet is a severed head, it's like wow, King Herod versus King Jesus, King Herod devours the sheep, like literally, he's a predator on one of the disciples of God, Jesus compassionately provides for the sheep, it sounds very like Exodus Ezekiel 34 doesn't it, way to the shepherds who are only in it for themselves. I myself will come and feed my sheep. And so when we see that Jesus has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, they kind of had a shepherd. They had King Herod, yeah, some shepherd he is. Jesus says, I'm going to come and do it myself. So it's a bit Ezekiel 34 e or pretty convincingly Ezekiel 34 e It's also a bit Isaiah 40 ei I don't know how you say that as a... Adjective Isaiah 40 e. Um, we've actually already been in Isaiah 40 in Mark's gospel. We know that it's open on Mark's desk because at the very beginning of the gospel, the as it's written in Isaiah, the prophet. I'll send my messenger before you to prepare your way. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. We we know Isaiah 40 is open. And um, you remember Mark kept saying in chapter 1, in the wilderness, in the wilderness, in the wilderness, because Isaiah was prophesying in the wilderness. And here in chapter 6, he keeps saying, in the wilderness, in the wilderness, in the wilderness. Like the Isaiah context. And then you read on in Isaiah 40, you probably know the chapter, amazing chapter. um, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. Says Isaiah, Oh, that sounds a bit like this as well, doesn't it? Jesus has compassion on them like sheep without a shepherd. And it's also a bit um, 2 Kings chapter 4e. Um, this is my favourite one. I don't know if how well you know 2 Kings, but let me just read you. What happens at the end of chapter 4? A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God, bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, fresh ears of grain. Elisha said, give it to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set that before a 100 people? So he repeated, give it to the men that they can eat. For this is what the Lord says, they shall eat and have some left over. So he gave it to them and they ate and they had some left over. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? It's the feeling of the 100 That's um, known. It's a bit like that as well. You might think, gosh, this is all over the place, isn't it? It's like, you know, where in the Old Testament are we supposed to go? Yeah, kind of, it's all over the place, except the thing about Ezekiel that you need to know is Ezekiel's big message is God's going to do another exodus. And the thing about Isaiah that you need to know in the second half of Isaiah is Isaiah's big message is God's going to do another Exodus. And the thing you need to know about Elisha in 2 Kings 4 is he's kind of like bringing about, he's the new Joshua after Elijah, who's the new Moses. Because there's going to be another Exodus. Because actually the way that the whole of the Old Testament works is the law tells you there was an exodus, God rescued his people. And then the prophets say, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Elisha, they all say, you know what God did back in the time of Moses? He's gonna do it again. That's actually the whole story of the Old Testament. It's the exodus and then the wait for Exodus two. That's the law and the prophets. And then Jesus shows up and does some very exodus things. That also pick up some Ezekiel and some Isaiah and some two kings things. And he says, Exodus 2. Here it is. The great rescue. It's maybe the biggest miracle of all so far because it's the one that tells us about his whole mission. To save people. uh, To rescue people. Okay, we just got two quick things to do, um, because I couldn't resist it. Um, and then we're gonna stop. So I hope you've still got an appetite to concentrate for a little bit longer. Here's the weird thing, okay? The feeding of the 5,000 is a rescue. So what's the feeding of the 4,000 then? Like, why do it again slightly less well? <laughs> it's slightly, it's a bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? Um, it's not quite as many people. She does it again. Um, the really weird thing about, about it is that not only does it almost the same thing happen, but Mark records it in almost the same way. Why don't you just look with your neighbour at chapter 8, verses 1 to 10, and see what similarities you find with the feeding of the four thousand. Okay, let's um, stop there. Do you notice, it's not kind of a kind of similar story. It is the same story. And sort of uncannily the same. And when, I mean, when Jesus goes, um, oh, there's a big crowd and I'm compassionate on them and they haven't got any food. And the summit disciples go, how can we feed these people here? in this? place? you are like, are you for real? It's like... Are they, like, goading Jesus? Like, come on, Jesus, wink. How can we feed all these people? It's like, because otherwise, do they not even remember? It's, like, just so odd, isn't it? And then how many loaves do you have? Well, this time, seven. Oh, it's got a bit of a better ratio. Uh, seven four thousandths is slightly better than five, five thousandths. Um, but not a lot better, frankly. And then they... They break it, they gave to the people, and then um, they all ate and were satisfied, the same phrase, identically, and then they took up the broken pieces, and then Mark numbers them at the end, there were 4,000 people. It's not even just roughly the same, it's Mark tells it the same way. So he wants you to notice how the same it is. It just makes the plot thicker, doesn't it? There there is, by the way, an old school of um, biblical critic so we're talking like sort of <coughs> 1960s, 1970s, where people say, oh, this must reflect two different sources. There were these two different stories sort of circulating um, in the first century. One is about Jesus. Well, the version where it's 5,000 people and the re- version where it's 4,000 people. And then Mark, he's such a stupid editor that he didn't even realize he'd already put the other one in and just accidentally did twice. It's like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> like Mark is really quite careful. I don't think he himself would not have noticed that he did the same thing. I mean, that people, seriously, scholars used to think that Mark was that stupid, and I think we've seen otherwise. So let's assume that Mark knows that he already told the story of the 5,000, and now he's telling the distinct story of the 4,000, but he wants you to know that it's almost identical. Why? Why does Mark want to do it again? Why does Mark want to tell us that Jesus did it again? So that we notice how similar it is? Um, actually, the answer, I think, comes in chapter 7. And the reason I want to do this little bit here is I want to show you that you can't, I mean, I hope you're getting this idea already from the, this weekend. You can't understand a bit of the Bible just from the paragraph. Like, you really can't. You, you certainly can't understand it from a verse. Beware the verse taken out of context, it can say anything. But even a paragraph isn't enough. You can't really tell what it means from the paragraph or for the chapter. You, you actually need to read three chapters. Um, and in fact, you need to read the whole gospel. Because that's just how books work and it's how um, Mark's gospel works. So um, I, I hope every time we've seen we need a big section to get the point Well, the same is true here. Because there's something that happens in between the two that is the link, I think. Chapter 7, verse four twenty-four. From there he arose, Jesus arose, and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and didn't want anyone to know, he couldn't be hidden. But immediately a woman, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Gosh, it's so difficult this, isn't it? It sounds like Jesus being so rude to this woman. So harsh. She just cares about her daughter the same as everyone else cares about their daughter. And he calls her a dog. You know, sometimes you get those books of hard sayings of Jesus. This is always in those books. What is going on? We are pretty outraged, and a non-Christian, when they read it, is outraged that Jesus would call a woman a dog, you know. But I think there's one thing more surprising than that Jesus calls her that, and it's her reaction to it. She, she doesn't react the same as a Westerner reacts. We go, Jesus, how dare you? And slap him on the face, probably. She doesn't do that. She goes, yeah, yeah, sure, granted, given. Yeah, but the dogs get the crumbs. You got any crumbs? This is an amazing reply, actually. And Jesus says to her, for this statement, you can go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she goes home and finds the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Um, it, It just reveals a massive difference between her and Western modern people, which is she doesn't feel entitled Uh, she doesn't think she has a right Uh, she's humble yeah a dog yeah I'll own that Jesus yeah Uh, that's fair any scraps? I'll be content with scraps if you've got any to spare sir such humility right and actually I think Jesus is kind of testing her are you saying you've got a right to this? she goes no no I don't think I have a right I just wondered if your mercy would overflow and Jesus goes, yeah, it will. Yeah. It, it, and it's a sort of it's a sort of test. And but the weird thing about it um, is this that Jesus, she asked for an exorcism, and then Jesus says in reply, let the children be fed first. Fed first? I didn't ask to be fed, Jesus. I've got plenty of food at home. I, it's about the demon, Jesus. Yeah, um, after the children have eaten. Like, since when did, how did this conversation about an exorcism go to a conversation about food? And then she kind of leans into that and she continues the metaphor. Yeah, can I have some crumbs? Meaning, can I have an exorcism? It's just, it's just a bit weird, isn't it? But, but you think, oh, is it anything to do with this? Because that was about food. Um, the feeding of the 5,000, of course, it was a very, very Jewish thing because the Exodus is a very, very Jewish thing. It was when Israel was really founded as a, as a nation, when they were brought out together and God called them his chosen people, his royal priesthood, a holy nation, constituted by the rescue. that they. Lo- um, the Moabites didn't look back to the Exodus with any great pleasure. The Egyptians certainly didn't look back to it with pleasure. It was a Jewish thing. That The great rescuer God come to save his people. And she says, can I have a bit of that, please? No, no, no. The Exodus rescue is for the Jews, for the children. I can't give the children's bread to the dogs. Mm. Any scraps, though? Any extra bits? I'd be satisfied with the crumbs, Jesus, if you've got any crumbs. Okay, says Jesus, you can have crumbs Another little clue, if you think this is a bit far-fetched, there's another clue, because actually Jesus doesn't say, let the children be fed first. Um, literally, in the Greek, it says, let the children be satisfied first. This is the same verb that's used at the feeding of the 5,000. They all ate and were satisfied. Let the children be satisfied. Let the Jews have their Exodus miracle first. yeah. Okay, but can I have it second, please? Yes, you can, says Jesus. And then he crosses the sea, and he goes to this um, place just just round from um, the Decapolis. And there's all all sorts of clues that we're in Gentile territory over here. Um, For one thing, we've already been to this side of the sea, earlier in Mark, and there was a lot of pigs there, which, if you know anything about Jewish food laws, you know... You know, it wasn't really on the menu for Jews. So, um, pig farming means Gentiles, means the nations. And they go there, and Jesus feeds 4,000 people. And here's the beautiful thing about it. It's the same. And that's what Mike wants to tell you. It's actually the same. It's not just, uh, well, you can have some sort of second-rate crumb rescue. No, you can have a full-scale rescue. Feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000 rescue. Uh, you can have an Exodus too. I'm going to call it More Than Crumbs. <laughs> so cool, this, isn't it? The, the passage that gets it that everyone thinks Jesus is being rude is actually Jesus testing whether she thinks he's entitled and then being amazingly kind. See here, because it turns out the rescue. I'm going to summarise it. Is for everyone. So I need to get a bigger pen to make this look nice. Hang on. The rescue is for everyone. Strike anyone. Don't worry. Well, I'm not suggesting universal redemption. I mean, it's offered to everyone. <laughs> You see how the, the bits of Mark fit together into a bigger story? Why the feeding of the 4,000? Because the Gentiles get it as well. Um, but I think there's one other reason. And um, I just want to show you this as well. Let's see if I can do the diagram. And this is the, my last point, is you're feeling sleepy. I'm feeling sleepy too, but we can't resist this. It's too, it's too fun. <coughs> That was one reason, here's another reason. The feeding of the 12, just turn to chapter eight. And look at verse 14. They'd forgotten to bring bread this is partly why I did the test earlier on, whether you could remember all the places that bread comes. The 5,000, the 4,000, and the 12. They'd forgotten to bring bread. They had only one life with them in the boat. Jesus cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus is continuing the bread metaphor here with reference to yeast. Watch out for the influence of, the Herod, of Herod and the Pharisees. What, what are Herod and the Pharisees known for by this stage in the, in the gospel? Hard hearts. Imperviousness to what Jesus is doing and saying. They don't listen. They don't, they don't respond. They don't repent. Watch out, disciples, that you don't go the way that Herod and the Pharisees go. There was all that little scare that their hearts were hardened in chapter 6. Be careful, says Jesus. And they began completely ignoring jesus warning they began discussing with one another the fact they had no bread and jesus aware of this said to them why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread like hello have you not been paying any attention at all over the last few chapters straight weeks of your life Like, this is by far the best bread-to-mouth ratio that we've had recently. (laughs) A whole life, for 12 of you, this is a cinch, right? But Jesus is actually really quite distressed at this. Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? Well, oh, 12. The seven for the 4,000, how many basketful of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, seven. He said to them, do you not understand? Like, they can remember... It's not that like they've had a knock to the head and got concussion and they were there. They can remember even the details. Oh, it's 12 baskets. There's a lot of bread left over, wasn't there, Jesus? Like, yeah, there was a lot left over and you're stressing about one loaf. It's like they're not making any progress at all in understanding. If anything, they're going Downhill. Sometimes people say, don't they, oh I'd believe if only there was a bit more evidence. Like no you wouldn't. <laughs> There's so much evidence here. There's not an evidence shortage and they don't get it. It's like you've got eyes but you don't see with your eyes, says Jesus. You've got ears but you don't hear with your ears. And then Jesus finds a man who's got eyes but doesn't see with his eyes and spits and makes mud paste and puts it on his eyes, and the man can see. And then only with that miracle of God's work in him, Peter goes, you're the Christ, aren't you? I got it, you're the Messiah. And she's like, yeah, well done. <laughs> <laughs> the feeling of Why do we get the feeling of the firethons and the 4,000? Well, one reason is to show us it's for everyone, because the Gentiles come in between. The other reason is to say, Without God opening eyes, we don't get it. It's an amazing moment. It's actually the moment that the whole Old Testament was pointing to. Exodus 1, the time of Moses. All of the prophets saying, look out for Exodus 2. That's what Ezekiel's about. It's what Isaiah's about. It's what Elisha's ministry is all about. Get ready for the next one. And Jesus shows up and he does the next one, and no one understands. <laughs> no one gets it. They just thought they were hungry, and he sort of he pulled it out of the bag, and they missed that this major turning point in world history was happening right in front of them. And Jesus did it again, and they still didn't understand. Uh, only when Jesus opens their eyes do they understand. Uh, it's an exodus it is for anyone that is anyone with the humility to admit that you're not entitled to it but will come empty-handed saying crumbs would be very kind of you jesus and he goes i'll give you more than that but only those in whom god's at work supernaturally can understand let's pray father we thank you for these amazing things that we've seen today so many things we pray that you'd help us to Think over them, look over them these coming weeks that we wouldn't get indigestion. We pray that they'd move from our first spiritual stomach to the the other three. We pray that we chew over these things. But Lord, how we praise you that Jesus, who does the ordinarily impossible, is pointing to his mission as the rescuer, the exodus bringer. And that this rescue is not just for the Jewish people, but even for us, people from Northern Ireland and England and other places even for this woman from Syria and Phoenicia, even for dogs. Thank you that Jesus is so generous to anyone who would come. But Lord, also we see that it's beyond us to understand this. It's not for want of evidence, Lord, it's just for the sake of blindness. And we praise you, therefore, every one of us who gets it, that you've opened our eyes that we might be. For Jesus' sake, amen.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of At The Castle. We hope that this teaching has helped you to better understand and apply the Word of God in your life. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your friends and family. We pray that the teachings of At The Castle will continue to help you grow in your knowledge of God's Word and personal discipleship. For more information about At The Castle, please visit our website www.atthecastle.org.uk. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.